Thank you, Dennis. Um, we won't be quite so technical in this presentation. So uh, I think we're all familiar with uh, the claim uh, that science proves God does not exist. seems like usually this is made within the context of a kind of naturalistic presuppositionalism in which nature is all that exists, and there is no place for a transcendent creator in such a scheme. And uh, commonly, then, it seems to make sense that a moral law of some kind is an illusion of human experience. I think that uh, Christians are called to confront the lies of Satan wherever they are, are found. Christ proclaimed himself to be not only in accord with the truth, but to be the truth. And so if we want to be faithful to Christ, I think we have to be very careful about, uh, well, uh, the logos of our arguments, uh, the substantive content there. And um, in doing that, I think it's useful to consider a very simple model of uh, reasoning, so I like to think of any given argument in terms of basic premises or pre presuppositions, and then to think of evidence, and that includes observations, and in the case of science, measurements. Uh, and we take those as inputs to the reasoning process to reach our conclusions. And at the same time, I think it's, it's really very important throughout our considerations that we uh, resist the temptation to engage in what I would call a kind of implicitly atheistic pragmatism. I think we should be ruthlessly pragmatic but we should always remember who Christ is, regardless of where a given argument might tend to lead, um, even if the consequences seem to be unpleasant. So if we want to evaluate claims about God, it'd be nice to have some idea of what we really mean by that word. What does the word God mean? And um, I think it's useful to think about theism in the abstract. So we can think of God as the absolute, and everything else that is not God as that which is contingent and contingent upon God. In the Bible, we learn that Yahweh is not only the foundation of existence, who revealed himself personally to the nation of Israel and is now revealing himself to all nations in the person of Christ, who created and sustains all that exists, but also that God is a holy, just, and merciful God in relationship with his creation and specifically with those who are made in his image. The natural world is a part of creation 
and God governs creation through laws that he established. We also learn that as human beings, we are in fact naturally enemies of God. We were were uniquely created by him and are uniquely responsible to the moral law that God has established for us. But in fact, we are in rebellion against God and his law. Deceived, enslaved, we love the pleasures of sin and lawlessness, and we hate God's holiness, we hate God's justice, we hate God's mercy, and we hate God's person. I think that uh, the Bible goes further to reveal the character of God, supremely in the cross of Christ, where we see not only the perfect holiness and just wrath of God against sin, but also his perfect mercy for us as sinners. So God freely pardons all who place their confidence in Christ alone and freely gives the Holy Spirit so that we have not only these benefits of salvation in this life, but the promise of perseverance and blamelessness at the day of judgment. I think that implicit in the biblical concept of God, there is also the idea of spiritual warfare. This isn't the kind of jihad that the world would be uh, familiar with, but it is uh, one that Christ exemplified supremely and the, uh, the objective of this warfare is only one, and that is to make disciples of Christ. The, method, the methods that we've been given to do this are uh, absolute folly from the point of view of the world, from the point of view of a kind of atheistic pragmatism. So we are to abide in Christ. We are to proclaim the gospel of Christ to all nations, literally ethne in the Greek, or races. All Christians are missionaries. Every forum is or can be made a platform for the gospel, and every unbeliever is a potential disciple of Christ. And finally, we are to simply trust God to bring his truth to fruition. So I think education, then, is a, uh, an absolutely crucial and extremely important uh, instrument of disciple formation, both in evangelization and then in, then in building people up in their faith. So if we think about uh, moral relativism and claims that might be made about its relationship to Einstein's theory of relativity, um, it's nice to know exactly what we're talking about. I think we can boil moral relativism down, usefully anyway, to two basic ideas. The first starts with the observation that is common uh, to, to moral absolutists as well, which is just that moral judgments are made with respect to standards by human beings. But then the moral relativist goes further and says that these human standards, in fact, do not correspond in any way to anything that transcends human society. If we're going to think about the way that Einstein's relativity might be related to moral relativism, we're going to have to consider the way that mathematics enters into uh, rational inference in science and in relativity in particular. And I think this model is, is somewhat useful So we start with our premises, typically. They're expressed in words. We have our evidence or our observations and measurements also expressed verbally and then in the language of mathematics. We translate everything into math and then we go to work. And as physicists, we like to talk to ourselves so we remember what the the math means. So we have some words here to explain what's going on. And we reach our conclusions and those are expressed in terms of mathematics mathematics and also in words, and then we translate the mathematics into verbal language uh, to reach our conclusions and state them uh, about nature in a way that is intuitively 
understandable. So I'd like to make a couple observations here. In the course of a physical argument, the words illuminate the flow of the logic or the logical structure of the arguments. And the mathematics can and is distinguished from the physics. So the physical concepts are dealing specifically about, with nature, and the technical details of the math are largely unimportant, at least for getting a qualitative understanding of the logical structure and even the components of the arguments themselves. So the idea is that we might be able, at least in certain cases, to use precise words to maintain the logical structure of arguments and to communicate it as rigorously possible, even to people who don't have an advanced mathematical background. And the, the goal here is to expose the logical steps of the arguments. And uh, we could then adjust the level of the mathematical details to the audience and substitute faith explicitly and liberally when necessary. And I would just uh, mention briefly that that's often done in mathematics texts uh, where you want to omit a proof. You simply say, we omit the proof of this theorem, and you go on, which is infinitely better than saying, that it is left to the student to show that, <laughs> or similar things. So, so on this slide, I'd just like to reiterate the point that the goal is to ideally convey a qualitative understanding of the components of the various arguments and how they fit together. And so hopefully then people without an advanced mathematical background will be able to think about the philosophical and theological implications for themselves. So we've talked some about the logos and the content and the careful uh, way that various arguments are put together and how we can be faithful to Christ by being careful about our reasoning. I think that there are some elements of our zeitgeist that really work against us when we're trying to engage our culture. And these things are things that uh, it's very easy to slip into. Um, cynicism, arrogance, and contempt in particular just seem to be epidemic. And I think that uh, we really need to examine ourselves prayerfully and and uh, repent where the Holy Spirit brings us to a point of conviction. And instead, place our hope firmly in our Sovereign Father when we are tempted to be cynical and rely radically on the Holy Spirit as Christ did uh, rather than thinking better of ourselves than we really should. And finally, I think that we need to cultivate a, an unconditional love for all persons and out of that an unconditional respect regardless of what they may have said, said or done. Um, and especially for those who don't deserve it. So I'd like to briefly model what some of these ideas uh, might look like, specifically how one might communicate uh, Einstein's relativity to a lay audience. And I'll just be hitting very high level uh, an outline of, of the, the basic ideas uh, in the hopes of, of helping to, you to see uh, what this might look like in practice. So in relativity, uh, in physics, rather, rel relativity is simply the study of relationships between measurements made using different coordinate systems. And a coordinate system is just a tool that we use to keep track of physical phenomena. It's a bookkeeping device. So if we wanted to study phenomena in this room, we'd start out by saying, well, we want to uh, be able to describe the locations of everything that happens and the time at which everything happens so then we can study the causal relationships between them. And we could do that. We could specify the, the location of every point in this room by measuring the distance to the back wall and the distance to the windows and the distance to the floor. And this would give us then a set of three numbers, which we could call x, y, and z, that are unique to, to each position in this room. And we could then take uh, a stopwatch and time 
the events and when they take place, and that would give us a fourth coordinate, which we call T. So I would point out here also that the theory of relativity is not unique to, to Einstein. There is actually a theory of relativity that I'll talk more about that's implicit in the physics of Newton and Galileo. So in physics, we uh, prefer coordinate systems that make our lives as simple as possible. Inertial coordinates do this for us. There are coordinate systems defined by the condition that Newton's laws of motion are valid. For our purposes, the only one that's actually going to be crucial is the first law. Newton's first law of motion states that in an inertial coordinate system, that is, using an inertial coordinate system to measure the, the motion of objects, objects move in straight lines at unchanging speed unless they're acted on by a force. They move in straight lines at unchanging speed unless acted on by a force. The principle of relativity turns out to be uh, quite simple to state, at least qualitatively, and that is just that the laws of nature are independent of human conventions, including the choice of coordinates that we use to describe the phenomenon in question. The laws of nature are independent of human coordinates. They're God-given, if you will, and so they won't depend on our conventions. This is your new electric sports car, and I'm going to skip this part. Okay. So coordinate transformations are very important because what they are is they're rules that tell us how quantities measured using different coordinate systems are related. If we wanted to keep track of the phenomenon in this room, instead of using those two walls and the floor, we could have used that wall and the front wall and the ceiling, and we could measure all the positions in the room from those, uh, from those basic uh, positions. So there are going to be relationships mathematically that relate those two descriptions, and that's what a coordinate transformation is. In Newton's theory of relativity, we talk about the Galilean transformations that relate different inertial systems, different inertial coordinate systems or reference frames. And in Einstein's theory of relativity, the Lorentz transformations do the same job. And the basic idea here is that all of the exotic and counterintuitive, one might argue, beautiful, strange phenomena uh, that are associated with Einstein's theory of relativity can in fact be deduced from the Lorentz transformation equations. And, and all of the phenomena that are familiar and intuitive to us can be deduced from the Galilean coordinate transformations. In a limit in which speeds involved are much less than the speed of light, the Lorentz transformations reduce to the Galilean transformations and our intuition is justified. So my idea then is that we can focus on the uh, really where these transformation equations are coming from. What are the fundamental presuppositions that, and the evidence that goes in to deducing these different transformations? The Galilean transformation in the case of Newton's relativity, the Lorentz transformations in the case of Einstein's relativity. And if we understand those basic presuppositions, then we'll be better equipped to actually evaluate what possible philosophical or theological implications there might be of the science, and specifically of Einstein's theory. So physical implications of Lorentz transformations, for those who are not familiar, are uh, very counterintuitive. We find that the time between events is not absolute. Moving clocks run slow. Moving objects contract along the direction of motion. And in fact, nothing travels faster than light in a vacuum. There's a, an absolute speed limit in the universe. The derivation of the Galilean transformation can be laid out um, in a comparatively simple form 
qualitatively. So modulo some technical mathematical assumptions that really don't matter for our purposes. We begin by assuming inertial coordinates. We assume the principle of relativity in a form that's somewhat technical that I didn't explain to you, but one could do if one had more time. The transformations have a simple form. Linear is a technical term. So we find that the transformations are simple if we assume inertial coordinates and assume the principle of relativity. And then we take the physical input. So Newton postulated in accord with our intuition that, us, that time intervals between events are absolute, that they're the same regardless of the coordinate system that's used to, to measure them. And if we do that and invoke the principle of relativity again, then we find the Galilean transformations. And all of the intuitive uh, phenomena that we're familiar with or conclusions about time and space follow from the Galilean transformations. The derivation of the Lorentz transformation is very similar. We start out in exactly the same way. Inertial coordinates, principle of relativity. We find that the transformations, again, are simple. Thank you. And now we take as physical input the assumption that there exists a speed which is the same regardless of the inertial coordinates that are used. And we invoke the principle of relativity again, and we find the Lorentz transformations. So we can compare the two approaches, and we find... Uh, that in some ways they're very similar. So for both Newton and, rel and Einstein, for both the uh, relativity of Newton and Galileo on the one hand and Einstein's relativity on the other, an event that happens that can be measured in one coordinate system happens in all coordinate systems. The space and time coordinates will be different using different coordinate systems, but the events themselves are absolute. We then have inertial coordinates in both cases, the principle of relativity in both cases. In Newton's case, we have absolute time. In Einstein's case, we have absolute and absolute speed, the speed of light and vacuum, which was suggested by work that preceded Einstein's work. So he took that as the basic assumption. And then we have the Galilean transformations with their familiar consequences and the Lorentz transformations with their counterintuitive and, uh, in many ways, uh, exotic and beautiful consequences. So I think now we're, I hope, better equipped to think about the possible philosophical and theological implications of Einstein's theory. I think we can certainly say that some of the laws by which God governs the universe have profoundly counterintuitive consequences. And I think uh, the natural universe, as revealed by the insights of Einstein and others, is really far more amazing and beautiful than we ever could have cooked up on our own. We, uh, the truth is truly much more strange and beautiful than any fiction that we would have invented. And I think this reflects the beauty and genius of the author of creation. So in summary, Christians have been chosen by God to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And as Christian educators, um, we have unique opportunities to build up the faith of students and lay people. And I'm optimistic that the relevant conceptual content, and even in certain cases the logical structure of, of things that are usually considered far beyond uh, what most people would be able to do, or what most people are trained to do, given the mathematical sophistication of the subject, um, the, these, uh, this conceptual content and logical structure can in fact be communicated to people who don't have an advanced mathematical background so that um, all interested people can have some sort of qualitative understanding that will allow them, um, ideally, to be able to think about uh, the philosophical and theological implications. And um, in that way, 
to be able to think for themselves about how modern science is revealing the majesty and beauty of God's creation and the eternal power and divine nature of God. Thank you. Yes. Well, I think that's an excellent question, and I think we really need to be in the business of, of reclaiming terms like that, um, and and where there are loaded terms that that have been essentially tainted in a way, um, uh, whether it's a, a religious uh, ideology that that's doing that or a kind of scientific uh, point of view that's that's doing that, and and I think that really we can use the uh, the loadedness uh, as an opportunity to segue uh, into um, really what is relativity and, and what does it mean then I, I would go back to what does it mean to be faithful to Christ you know if it, in some sense I wouldn't I, in some sense if we were to to discover scientifically like if science were to really conclusively prove that God doesn't exist then all Christians should become atheists right away. <laughs> I mean, because Christ said, I am the truth. And so what is the truth? And I think that, that we really uh, we have to, to think about, okay, what does Einstein's theory really say? And uh, what is relativity? And, and I think if people understand what it really is, then they'll, they'll realize that, that this, is not, this is not a problem uh, for, for believers. You can make a good argument that relativity is a bad term if you're not going to get rid of it. I mean, it's like trying to get rid of Big Bang or something like that. It's, it's not going to change. Uh, but and, and the thing to do, I think, is to go ahead and, and emphasize there are absolutes in relativity, not just the speed of light and the electric charge and various other things. Uh, but then, if I just make a pedagogic point, it seems to me, you know, when you refer to the, the exotic and counterintuitive things, uh, if this is uh, pedagogically for people 